Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, the words that are haunting the boss of the Reserve Bank. We do not expect the cash rate to be increased until 2024 at the earliest. So that's Philip Lowe, the Governor of the Reserve Bank. Now, those words will probably be haunting hundreds of thousands of households that took out big mortgages based on that expectation that interest rates wouldn't go up until 2024. Now, here we are in June of 2022, and they've already gone up twice. They're up 75 basis points. So that means whenever Philip Lowe speaks publicly now, the same question seems to come up. You said that rates would not rise before 2024. In May, the RBA lifted rates by 25 basis points, then this month by 50. What would you say to people watching who feel rattled? So it's a very challenging question, as you can hear there. So in this episode, we'll ask, what's going to happen here? Will big numbers of homeowners be forced to sell? Could that spark a housing crash? Could that put the economy in recession? And will there be accountability for Philip Lowe and that guidance that was out by over two years? Yeah, I understand that people have made borrowing decisions based on our communication and uh, people took out loans that they may not have otherwise taken out. That is our briefing topic. First, Annika Smethurst joins us for the headlines. It is Thursday, the 16th of June. Kids in New South Wales and Victoria could soon be starting school a year earlier. Both the state governments have pledged to make the year before kindergarten an extra free year and abolish kinder, replacing it with pre-prep by 2025 in Victoria and 2030 in New South Wales. And it's about making sure that our children have the absolute best start in life will be able to attend a universal pre-kindergarten year that is free of charge for five days a week to really help set them up for future success. Yeah, so that's the New South Wales Education Minister, Sarah Mitchell, there. Um, the New South Wales government have committed $5.8 billion to this and the Victorian government have set aside $9 billion. So lots to talk about here, Annika. One, it's great to see these two state governments working together, but I also think the idea itself is quite a good one. A lot of parents I know would want to be sending their kids to a full year of preschool education in that final year before starting kindergarten anyway, but they struggle to find places and they struggle to pay for it. So if there are places for everyone, it's, you know, essentially guaranteed and it's free, then parents will be loving it. Yeah, it seems like a really good policy. And you say the fact they've teamed up together. This is one of a number of policy areas this is where this has happened now. Dominic Perrottet and Daniel Andrews putting together proposals about health to the federal mm. government, about stamp duty. They're sort of taking it as the biggest two states into their own hands, a lot of these reforms, which really came up during COVID as issues, this sort of federal v state sort of tension. So I think that's really, really encouraging. And the money's great. As you say, it's really hard to find childcare places, we both know that. They're hopefully, you know, this will actually boost the number of places though. I know in Victoria, they're committing to building 50 centres over the next 10 years. Now, that's not exactly going to create uh, an easy situation. There's one third of us that don't live in areas where there's enough childcare, but it should help a bit. They reckon it'll, you know, add three to 5% to the stock. And ultimately, this is a federal issue. So it's not even up to the states to be doing it. They're just doing it because they recognise the importance of early education. Mm. And the East Coast energy market has been shut down 
To avoid blackouts, it's a national first where the energy market regulator has suspended spot trading. So that's a short-term trading. It means the Australian energy market operator is now in charge of directing supplies from energy providers into the grid. We're creating a simple process where AMO has true visibility of which generators are available and when in advance rather than relying on last-minute interventions. That's AMO Chief Daniel Westerman there. Now, he said there's now no expectation of blackouts across Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria or South Australia, although New South Wales and Queensland residents were urged to cut down on their power usage last night after a warning energy suppliers were hitting critically low levels. Yeah, this has been an absolute debacle. Basically, the cold snap, the war in Ukraine pushing up global energy prices and our ageing coal plants being down for maintenance are the factors that have contributed to this shortfall in the energy market. And earlier this week, the regulator, AEMO, that we just talked about, they imposed a price cap, but then some of the producers stopped producing because they said they'd be making a loss if they sold under that price cap. So then the regulator had to try and force them to supply energy, which requires financial compensation. And then yesterday, this big decision to shut down the whole spot market. What a mess, Annika. Yeah, it is a mess. And, you know, I know it's a very controversial policy area, energy, but you'd have to think in a country like Australia, one of the priorities should be that we can just flick the switch in our house and get energy. You know, it's not um, a third world country, a developing country. This is something that we should be good at too, given our natural resources. So it's incredible we got ourselves into this situation, but hopefully now that guarantee gets us through a little bit longer. What do you think this says about the coalition's energy policies of the last nine years? Yeah, I definitely think, you know, it's the certainty and you constantly hear that from the market that while they might not have been happy with different policies over the time, not knowing what was happening and the messiness and the changes, which it's really not only eaten up the coalition government, this goes back into the Labor government. There was obviously huge debates over climate change and it's just been such a messy period for Australia and this is the result of it that, you know, we don't have that guarantee of energy. Well, speaking of energy policy, the Prime Minister will make a fresh climate pledge today. Anthony Albanese and Energy Minister Chris Bowen will formally make a commitment to the UN to cut our emissions by 43% by 2030. So this is an upgrade from the former Morrison government's position of 26 to 28%. Labor's under pressure to increase the 43% target, though, because the Greens vote is needed to pass it in the Senate. And we also know many of the Teal candidates elected in last month's federal election were pretty keen for the government to do that too. So for now, Labor has ruled out any changes, saying if they have to, they'll put both the 2030 target and net zero target by 2050 in place without legislation. Yeah, so this is an interesting one. Obviously, Labor played it very safe heading into the election, not wanting to overpromise on climate change and, you know, possibly lose votes in regional Queensland. Um, but then, you know, the election, uh, I think, surprised a lot of people just how much it swung against the government and towards these candidates who want stronger action on climate change. But... The- The tricky thing will be if they get pushed beyond 43%, this will be what the coalition warn them about and give them political ammunition. 
Mm, I think it's a really like difficult read for Labor here. I don't think it's exactly a correct reading of the election to say it was this climate election, that this is what everybody wanted. It certainly was in some places, especially in those inner city seats. But that's the reason I guess Labor even dropped it. You know, the, the initial policy was 45% targets. Uh, Bill Shorten found himself in difficulty trying to get that through. And some of the questions created about how much that was going to cost and how he was going to do it. They did play it safe. They tried not to talk about it too much during the election. They managed to get into power. And you'd have to think that they have to stick to that now because Mm. that's what happened last time to Labor when they got in and then started talking about a carbon tax. So I think it's a smart move by Anthony Albanese not to automatically put that any higher at this stage. To big interest rate news in the US, the Federal Reserve has just announced their biggest rate hike in almost 30 years. Today, the Federal Open Market Committee raised its policy interest rate by three quarters of a percentage point and anticipates that ongoing increases in that rate will be appropriate. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell there. Now, this means the federal funds rate target range is now 1.5% to 1.75%. They are also forecasting the rate will be 3.4% by the end of the year, meaning another 175 basis points of rate hikes are on the cards, Tom. Yeah, so massive rate hikes there in America. And we're talking about this in our briefing today. It's all about rating in inflation, which in the US is 8.6%. And the Fed have said, and you know, the rate rises back this up, that they're strongly committed to returning inflation to its 2% objective. And this is what's blowing up equity markets around the world because there are big fears that these big rate hikes will drive the economy into recession but it seems that the Reserve in America are potentially willing to do that if that's what it takes to bring down um, spiralling inflation. So the big pay rise decision for minimum wage earners was handed down yesterday. The Fair Work Commission deciding on a 5.2% rise to the minimum wage just over the current rate of inflation, which is at 5.1%. So this means 180,000 workers will receive an extra $40 a week from next month although the business sector is warning that this will put too much pressure on small business. This will add $7.9 billion in costs to the affected businesses. Andrew McCullough, CEO of the Australian Chamber and Commerce and Industry there. Now, this was the decision Albo backed. Labor couldn't promise it, but he said that he would be supporting it. And it's the same decision Scott Morrison called him a loose unit for supporting. What do you think of this decision and what do you think it says about the way Scott Morrison approached this during the election? Look, I think it was a total misread by Scott Morrison. I think there are concerns that if you, you know, put up this minimum wage, that it does just fuel these sort of factors pushing up inflation. But to not understand how difficult it was talking about, you know, cost of living crisis during the election, but failing to understand what that 40 bucks a week could actually mean for people. I thought it was quite dismissive of him to sort of not answer it with the generosity that Albo did. Now, Labor could never promise this, Tom, you know, that it's not actually up to them. But I think Albanese's answer showed that he had some sympathy for people in this position. Yeah, and so they made a submission to the Fair Work Commission backing this decision, and it showed they're on the side of low-paid workers. And I think the other thing that I guess didn't sound very good coming from Scott Morrison was... You know, they've been up saying, you know, 
these hard workers in our supermarkets and all these other frontline services were the heroes of the pandemic. And then when it came to <laughs> keep their wages just in line with inflation, nope, sorry, um, no pay rise for you. So yeah, it did really make him look quite hollow um, in some of the words that he'd said previously. And also, yeah, any, any kind of empathy or compassion for the people doing it toughest. All right, great having you back, Annika, for the headlines. In just a moment, I am going to go deep on interest rates and the problematic forward guidance from the boss of the Reserve Bank. So there's been so much in the news recently about inflation and interest rates, and that's because we're in very strange economic times as we bounce out of the pandemic. The main problem is inflation. As you've been hearing, it's up at 8% in the US and many other Western countries. It's expected to hit 7% here in Australia. And one of the only tools the central banks have to deal with it is jacking up interest rates, which makes borrowing money more expensive, which slows down spending in the economy and pushes prices back down. So here in Australia, our interest rates are up from their record low of 0.1%. They're up at 0.85% already. So that's a 75 basis point increase. Now that's fine. There's not that much criticism of that. That's sort of what the Reserve Bank have to do. Where it gets a bit stickier is the fact that the Reserve Bank boss, Philip Lowe, right up until the end of last year was saying that he didn't think rates would be going up until 2024. Then in February this year, After lots of pressure and questions, he finally acknowledged that rates could actually go up by the end of this year. So that's February. And then by May and June, he was already hiking them. So let's explore this whole situation and the problem with that guidance with John Kehoe. He's the economics editor at the Australian Financial Review. He's based in Canberra. John, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. So you challenged Philip Lowe, very politely, I must say, about this issue. This is part of Philip Lowe's answer. So from a forecasting perspective, that's embarrassing. We should forecast this better. We didn't. So what do you make of this whole issue? John, given economic forecasts are always challenging, do you think Philip Lowe made a pretty big mistake with that 2024 guidance and the fact that he stuck with it all the way until November last year? Yeah, Tom, I think in retrospect, uh, the RBA did make a mistake to guide so strongly that they didn't think rates were going to rise until 2024. It's hard enough to forecast six or 12 months into the future, let alone three years into the future when they originally did that forecast. I mean, in in their defence, when they originally made that forecast at the start of the pandemic in early 2020, things did look a bit dire. I mean, Philip Lowe has said we were being told by the medical experts that tens of thousands of people could die within months, the hospitals would be overrun, unemployment would go to 15% and there'd be deep economic and social scarring. So, You can understand why initially they made that sort of call to give people confidence that they could borrow at low rates for a long time and lock it in. Um, But I think the bigger mistake they made beyond just the 2024 guidance was actually clinging onto it far too long. Once the economy was showing signs of recovering a lot better, the unemployment rate started to fall, people were spending strongly, the lockdowns ended, and they clung to that guidance for too long. And now we've run into a a high inflationary environment and they've had to do a quick U-turn. The last rate drop was in November 2020. By that stage, we'd already come out of the first lockdown. We hadn't gone into recession. Turned out that we never did. So a lot was changing. Things already looked a lot better than they did 
after those initial, you know, really frightening forecasts of of the amount of COVID deaths we'd face and the impact that might have on the economy, why would you make a three-year forecast in those kind of conditions when things are changing so fast? It's one of these things where the theory of central banks is sometimes you give forward guidance to squeeze the last bit of out of the lemon of monetary policy. When rates are down near zero, you can't cut rates any further. So you start to guide further and further into the future to encourage people to borrow, to spend, to have confidence. But that's the theory behind it. But the practice of it, as we've sort of learnt now, doesn't marry up so much in the real world where things can change so quickly and we're experiencing that now. I mean, things are just very difficult to see into the future. And I think the RBA is going to hold a review or is at the moment into some of their tools that they use during the pandemic. And no doubt that 2024 guidance is going to be something that they probably won't use in the future. There were over half a million people that took out new mortgages last year. I mean, do you think mm. a lot of those people had Philip Lowe's words in their heads when they made those decisions on how much they'd borrow? I do think people probably do, and they took out bigger loans and probably higher debts than they otherwise would have. One of the tools that people used was very low fixed rates, locking that in for two or three years, partially because the RBA gave very, very cheap, almost free funding to the commercial banks to allow them to make very, very low fixed rate loans of less than 2% mortgage rate. Now, some of those loans, $500 billion worth of them, are going to reset over the next two or three years. So people are going to be going from a fixed rate of, say, less than 2% to a fixed rate of maybe 4 or 5%. And if you're on a variable rate loan, well, obviously, you're going to feel the impact of interest rate rises more immediately. I think the thing to remember, though, is banks, when they give money out to people and they lend money, they want the money to be repaid and they allow a buffer of about 2.5-3% of interest rate rises into the future. So I think some of these people are going to have to pull in their spending a bit but I don't expect a massive wave of mortgage defaults immediately. If rates go up by, say, 2% or so, people have to pull in their purse strings a bit, but I don't think it's going to be all dire, doom and gloom. Right, yeah. How do you see it playing out? Because he is guiding um, to 2.5%, mm. so, you know, that's a big jump off the floor where they were at 0.1%. How much pain do you think it will cause? We're at 0.85% now. If we get to around 2%, most people, with some exceptions, will be able to handle that. And the thing that the RBA keeps pointing to is this $250 billion worth of extra savings, the low unemployment rate. People are still spending very strongly at the moment in the economy. So household balance sheets are actually in a pretty good position. The question for me is if you see the cash rate start to go over 2%, I mean, Australians are amongst the most indebted households in the world. They borrow a lot of money to buy expensive houses, basically, much more than the rest of the world. And so if we start to go see the cash rate go above 2%, Philip Lowe says it could go to 25 but some people, the financial markets are betting on it hitting 3% by the end of this year, 4% by uh, late next year. I just think that would really inflict some damage uh, on the housing market and, and the broader economy. And we, we'd start to see big house price falls of 20, 25%. I think we can probably handle a house price fall nationally of, say, 10 or 15%, given that prices have gone up over 30%. But yeah, I, I think that 2% threshold for the cash rate, that's a key one. If we start getting a 3 or 4% cash rate, you would really start to see the economy impacted, I believe. So, how do you think? 
Philip Lowe is really feeling about that guidance he gave. In answer to your question, he said mm. it was embarrassing. Um, this week to Lee Sales on the ABC, mm. he was saying that some people interpreted his comments as a promise, but really they mm. were conditional on the economic conditions they were mm. given in, which ended up changing. So he's he's almost shifting the blame to the way people interpreted his comments. What do you think is going yeah. through his head? Well, it was interesting to hear how candid he was when I asked him that question a couple of weeks ago, and he said it was embarrassing, he felt silly. Uh, and, and look, he's a fairly honest guy. He, he doesn't have a big ego, and he's prepared to at least publicly admit to some of the mistakes he's made, unlike some of our political leaders around the country. So so that's good. I mean, there's a bit of frankness there. Yeah, the, um, the word em- it, embarrassing... I don't know how to describe it, except it's an embarrassing thing to have to admit that you're embarrassed <laughs> about what you did <laughs> as the boss of the Reserve Bank. Exactly, exactly. So he's under a lot of scrutiny, but he's a half-glass-full sort of guy. And, and, and we shouldn't lose sight of the fact there is a lot of risks on the horizon with the global economy and things at the moment and inflation. But actually, as we stand here right now, the Australian economy is actually in pretty good shape. Um, we've got unemployment below 4%. Consumers are spending strongly. So there are some good fundamentals. For me, it's more about the risks down the track, this rising inflation, electricity prices, petrol prices, feeding through to a lot of other things in the economy, the rising interest rates, but um, more particularly, some of the risks that are now brewing offshore. The US economy markets there are pricing in a US recession, aggressive US interest rate rises. And of course, China's COVID zero policy that's continuing to disrupt global supply chains, things being imported into Australia, pushing up the price of goods, building materials. We're seeing that in steel and timber. For example, builders who signed fixed price contracts over a year ago or so are building homes now potentially at a loss because the cost of their materials has gone up. And we're already seeing some of these builders go under or struggling to Mm. survive. So there are potential flow on effects down the track. So you're saying it's good that Philip Lowe can be candid about the Mm. guidance mistake, describing it as embarrassing, but will there be more consequences for it? I mean, particularly if if it does Mm. play out badly for those half a million or so mortgage holders who took out big loans based on that guidance. I know there's an internal review on guidance Mm -hmm. happening at the RBA. There's also going to be a government review into the, the RBA and the way it works in a more holistic sense. Will there be punishment or will there be any sort of price to pay for that mistake? Yeah, I mean, there probably does need to be accountability. Um, the Treasurer will look at this in a measured way. The RBA is vowed to learn from its mistakes. Um, you know, some people have suggested Philip Lowe, maybe his position needs to be reviewed and he could be, you know, face um, being outed. I, I don't think Chalmers is going to go down that route anytime soon. I think that that would just actually add more disruption mm. and uncertainty to uh, to our economy at a, at a testing time. I think the main thing is that the RBA learns from these mistakes. And also, people out there in the economy probably have to realise too, and we've all realised this, although there's very smart people working at the RBA, hmm. um, it's very hard to forecast the future and we shouldn't rely on their words too much. And sometimes the old common sense pub test, test your own judgement, does that really sound right? interest rates are going to stay at zero for three years. I asked him this about 18 months ago at the National Press Club. How can you pledge to keep rates that low for that long? And he said to me at the time, he said, it's not a pledge, it's a best guess. And we need to keep this in mind that these very smart people in powers of authority, they are only giving their best guess and they can often be wrong. 
Well, it's often about the language and the assumptions that go into these forecasts as well that I think maybe there's a, a gap between what the public really understand about the way these policies work and the way that mm. forecasts work, the assumptions that are made going into them um, versus the simplistic statements that end up in the news at six o'clock on TV. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. So the 2024 guidance, for example, was based on their forecast of where they thought the economy, unemployment and inflation would be, but it was actually reported and maybe the RBA miscommunicated and could have communicated better. It was reported as they were promising to keep rates on hold until 2024. So I think the RBA is going to have to reflect on how it communicates going forward as well about future raises interest rates and actually probably show a little bit more humility and sometimes rather than giving firm guidance, just saying we're actually not sure. And to be honest, we're already seeing that happen now. Like he's now saying it's a bit unclearer. He's talking about maybe rates going to 2.5% gradually over time. That's the sort of theoretical thing. But he's also admitted it's unclear and he doesn't really know. And so I think we will see a bit more humility, a bit more uncertainty in the RBA's guidance and, and forecasts in the future. That was John Kehoe, economics editor from the Australian Financial Review. I guess we just have to watch on as this inflation problem continues. When will it start to fall? Will the Reserve Bank get it right with the level of interest rate rise? If they go too far, it can crash the economy. If they don't go far enough, the inflation problem won't go away. So economics can be boring, but it's certainly not at the moment. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we're talking about the increase in people buying drugs via TikTok. Listener.